Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me on Twitter at FTCNHost. Thanks for listening. In this episode of From the Crow's Nest, I sit down with Gordon Mansfield, Vice President, Global Technology Planning from AT&T. Gordon is responsible for managing the multi-year network capital planning roadmap and spectrum strategy. Uh, he also had in his portfolio, he manages critical large-scale network deployment projects uh, such as FirstNet, 5G security, and so forth. Uh, so I wanted to have him on the show because uh, U.S. national spectrum strategy is getting a lot of attention in our sector these days. Uh, we continue to figure out how to more effectively and efficiently manage, allocate, share our spectrum uh, to meet what seems to be an ever more complicated set of competing requirements. Uh, so from both the military and the commercial perspectives, of course, AT&T is in both worlds. And so I thought uh, it would be great to get their perspective on how they see it from an industry perspective. We recorded this episode a little while ago, a few weeks ago. Um, and in the meantime, uh, since the Biden administration formally released its national spectrum strategy earlier this month, and so the interview takes place before the report was released, but it is safe to say that there were no surprises in the report. The thing is, with any of these strategies, of course, it's less about what is said and what more about what is not said or how they say it that really matters. Uh, so a lot of reading between the lines. And then, of course, the big question is, how is it implemented? As everyone in the EMSO community is well familiar, we're still asking these questions as it pertains to the EMS superiority strategy uh, from 2020. So when you have a strategy, it's great, but if it doesn't move the needle, it comes out flat or is just a, a book of words. And so we're really looking forward to this, seeing how this national spectrum strategy is implemented, how it aligns with the EMS superiority strategy, a lot of changes happening in DOD to, to, to figure out and to monitor. And so we hope to be able to be a resource for you in this effort here on From the Crow's Nest. Before I get to my interview with Gordon, just a couple other quick pieces. Obviously, the AOC 2023, our 60th annual International Convention Symposium, is just around the corner, two weeks away, December 11th to the 13th. So if you haven't had a chance to register or you're still kind of on the fence, please go to crows.org or AOC2023 to learn more about the heavy list of keynote speakers, session tracks, technology tracks, program manager briefing series. We have it all. Um, it's It looks like it's going to be the largest AOC convention, at least in decades. So, you know, really looking forward to it. From the Crows Nest will be there. We'll be live streaming from the exhibit floor. So if you want to tap into that live stream and see us there, we'll be going through uh, the AOC's LinkedIn page. So we'll be using LinkedIn Live for that, uh, a new platform for us, but we're looking forward to it. And then finally, as I mentioned last episode as well, 2024 is just around the corner, making some great changes to the show. Beginning in January, we're going to be launching a subscriber 
package. Uh, so in addition to our bi-weekly regular free episodes that we release, those will stay the same, open to everybody. We're also going to be doing a subscriber package that has two additional episodes each month where we'll be sitting down with a rotation of guests to, to kind of talk about news of the day. These episodes, however, will give the audience a chance to watch and participate with us live as we in, in talk to the guests. We'll be able to ask your questions, you know, get your thoughts and comments. We'll record those and then put that out uh, as, as a subscriber-only episode the following day. So really looking forward to that. So stay tuned for some more of those changes. And so now, without any further delay, I welcome Gordon Mansfield to the show. Hey, Ken. Great to be with you. Interesting topic we're about to go into, so happy to be here. Interesting indeed and very complex. And so, you know, I wanted to make sure that we take our time. But, you know, one of the it's, it's always challenging to find people who really thoroughly understand this issue, kind of can see it holistically from multiple perspectives. Uh, your your background being in the Air Force as well as now with AT&T gives you that perspective across the military and commercial. And so I really do appreciate you taking time to come on the show. Real briefly, could you just talk a little bit about how you fit into the, this picture from an AT&T perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as you mentioned, I'm the vice president of global technology planning. And in that role, candidly, I have responsibility for our, our spectrum portfolio. Uh, it starts there. But beyond that, I also uh, basically manage our investments in our network. So taking ideas and concepts out of lab, figuring out uh, which ones have uh, the best return, and then, you know, make the investments to go get those deployed as well as deploying, uh, you know, our our capacity and our capabilities throughout our network. So I was uh, chatting with a a colleague outside of the professional space the other day, and they asked me what I did. And I said, well, I work for an association that advocates for electromagnetic spectrum operations. And, And that was quickly followed up with like, well, what the is that, you know, and, and, and so I tried to explain it. I did a horrible job and they said, well, try to explain, can you explain that at at a third grade level? Um, I, I tried, but that got me thinking in preparation for talking with you today is, you know, you, you can't have really have any conversation about MSO without obviously talking first about the, this maneuver space, this warfighting environment of the electromagnetic spectrum. And it is extremely confusing. I think a lot of people understand parts of it, but they don't really understand the big picture. So as close as you can get to a third grade level, can you talk a little bit about the challenge of understanding this uh, space that we're, we're dealing with today in the electromagnetic spectrum? It is often uh, a very complicated conversation, as, as you alluded to. But at the end of the day, it's actually not as complicated as people think. And what I mean by that is, is oftentimes people think that, hey, a DoD system uh, has unique, uniqueness that is not similar to, say, a telecom system. And at the end of the day, it's all physics. You know, your, your different airwaves propagate certain wavelengths in, in different ways. And so at the end of the day, it's all about managing that propagation uh, while, while also mitigating any potential interference. And so think about it. You know, the way I like to explain when you, when you talk about propagation versus interference, it's, it's, you know, we've all been in a crowded room where we've had conversations. And when it's just you and I talking, we can hear each other very clearly. But as more and more people start talking, we have to talk louder and louder so that we get above the noise of everybody else. Well, it's the same thing when you start thinking about propagation and, and, and how, how the airwaves carry forward. 
Well, if you have multiple parties in that same airwaves, right, the noise is rising. And so you have to talk a little bit louder to get to, to, to get above that noise level. And so when we think about how do we mitigate, how do we manage, right, in this electromagnetic space, uh, those are just the basic principles that that both have to, uh, you know, in all parties that are playing in, in the same uh, vicinity of the airwaves, uh, it's the same principles that apply. How do you how do you cut the noise out? How do you talk over the noise? And and that's how you get clean signals to do something with. Taking that analogy, you know, particularly over the last 20, 30 years, that that room has gotten a lot more crowded a lot more quickly. In the EMSO space, you know, we, we used to talk about the spectrum being a contested environment. It's moved to more of a congested environment. Now we talk complex. I've heard chaotic when you start to think about time and, and what you need to do right now. That is contrasted, though, with, I think, you know, when you look across agencies, DOD, commerce, all the, all the public and private entities, there is... And I wouldn't say an alarming, but there's a dramatic increase in, in, in how much spectrum we do need in our daily lives. Um, could you talk about how do you keep up that pace so that you have that predictably available spectrum that you need, both from the commercial perspective and then, of course, from the military perspective? Yeah, that's that's actually a, a really good question. And and look, if we all had our, our way, we would all be assigned our, our clean space of spectrum and we'd all go and just mitigate uh, in different blocks of spectrum. But but the reality is, you know, for, for the propagation effects that I spoke of before, we, from a telecom perspective, DOD, their systems that they care most about, they function best in what's referred to as mid-band spectrum, which is really spectrum that's, that's uh, kind of below eight and a half gig. And the unfortunate reality is, is, is there's so many functions, both from a DOD perspective, but also from a spectrum needs of the telecom, plus many other things. Radio altimeters is another recent one that I've had the opportunity to work with to mitigate. The fact is we have lots of demands that are all competing for that same prime real estate of spectrum. And so we're in that unfortunate reality that is as much as we would like to go have that clean slice... Uh, we're just to a point where our demands collectively are higher than the availability of of spectrum that meet that criteria. And that leads us to where we are today, where we've got to get to a place uh, where sharing of the spectrum is possible. And so that's really what's driving the conversations that we're having now is I think people on, on both sides, uh, some not as readily uh, resigning to the fact that sharing is where we have to be. But once you start to evaluate the landscape, evaluate all the needs, you quickly come to the conclusion sharing is the only way forward. And now we got to get to the hard work of, well, how do we make that work? You raised the, uh, the solution of, of sharing. And that's one of the reasons why I did want to have you on, uh, because that, that is a, a position that you know, we at the AOC talk a lot about it as kind of the path that we need to take. Wanted to dive into that a little bit more about what that involves as a solution, there's because there's other solutions that have been out there. Uh, there's some legacy solutions about, you know, how you auction it off and reimburse and all that. So I want to kind of talk a little bit of a compare and contrast, but I'm a father of three girls. And for the last decade, I have been trying to figure out how to teach them to share because they all have competing interests and they all want to stake out their ownership and dictate the terms of fairness and all that other stuff. You know, this is, this is what I need it for. So 
I don't know how to do that yet. But you know, when you think about the spectrum, could you talk a little bit about, from a technical perspective, what is sharing? And then how do we go about really effectively implementing that solution? It's been out there for a while now, and, and it's, sometimes it moves forward, sometimes it spins its wheel. So I'd like to get your perspective on that. Yeah, again, it's a great question. Let's maybe back up a second and talk about what the objective of sharing would be. Then we can talk about what are the trade-offs. And so, look, the objective should be that the sharing parties have a, you know, have mutual access, right? But with that mutual access, it means that that they both have to have uh, assured availability of high power, predictable, and reliable access, right? That's not one side has that, both sides have to have that, right? And, and so if, if, if we start there is that that has to be kind of the guiding principles and the objectives, you know, then you start to, you know, build on, well, well how do you get there? You mentioned the analogy of your girls. Uh, it's, it's a great analogy because really at the end of the day, how do we collectively, as we grow from young girls into adults, how do we get to the point where we share? And, and typically how we get to that point is we learn to trust, right? And, and, and candidly for us to solve the sharing problem, it starts with exactly that. We have to trust. That means the telecom industry has to trust that the industrial base of DOD and the DOD itself is looking, you know, looking for a solution that is mutually beneficial as does, you know, on the other side, they have to trust that we're doing the same. And candidly, when we start thinking about the challenges of solving the problem, it's that trust factor that actually is the gating issue. I'll give you a couple of examples, recent examples of where we've come into this. Highly publicized when, when the C-band spectrum was auctioned off, all of a sudden we were about to launch the spectrum and the FAA raised a concern about interference with radio, radio altimeters. Well, the fact of the matter is, right, at the beginning, there was a lack of trust. I'll be very candid on both sides. We didn't understand them. They didn't understand us. But I'm very happy to say that, you know, a couple of years after we got into very deep conversations, both parties are now able to use their spectrum, right, in a deconflicted way to where I don't have any major issues in my network. I have very, you know, very moderate uh, ramifications. And the airline industry uh, is the same. If I apply it to DOD 345 spectrum that's already out there, same thing. We've got highly predictable access in the majority of the country, right? From a geographic perspective, roughly 85% of the country is readily available for us to go and deploy this spectrum. DOD, right, is still using it in, in the remaining 15% where we have to deconflict. Well, again, the starting point, it was, hey, we can't really share. But I'm also happy to say through the leadership of DOD CIO's office, right, we've, we've had lots of engagement, not only with DOD in the CIO office, uh, but the services to actually dive into and look at what the realities of how our system operates were versus the systems that we need to deconflict. And what we find in those conversations when the engineers come, no agendas, we're trying to solve a problem, we get the engineers in the room and we find out, hey, you know what? There's not as big of a problem as we think there is. The majority of the sites surrounding 
the DOD system can actually be used at, at, with full capabilities. You now narrow that down to a subset of the sites that you now have to actually drive uh, solutions for. If I could kind of dig into that a little bit, because I really appreciate what you said about trust. I think that's immensely important. When we're dealing with what I would call legacy processes, there's a tendency to just kind of fall back on ways of doing business or ways of thinking that ultimately will limit trust because the key thing with trust is that you need to make sure that, like you mentioned, you have to have conversation, you have to share information, you have to share the right information in the right amount to get all the the modeling and simulation worked out. How hard or, and you mentioned the CIO, and I, I, I agree, they have done a tremendous job at kind of moving the ball forward here, but it's been frustrating at times to see both sides kind of dig in a little bit. So one of the areas that you talked about in building trust is through the National Spectrum Consortium, the PATHS process, um, which stands for Partnering to Advance Trusted and Holistic Spectrum Solutions, which is exactly what you're talking about, advancing that trust, getting that information out. Could you talk a little bit about how you've seen DOD change specifically from 15 years ago is knee-jerk. No, it's national security. You can't touch it. Beachfront property, whatever you want to call it, to, hey, we need to sit down at the table and here's the information that we've previously withheld from you. Could you talk a little bit about what you've seen on that on that front? It has changed drastically uh, over the last decade, decade and a half for sure. The big change comes from the realization that there's multiple national interests, right? If you think about certainly national security and, and, and defense, that hasn't changed. Uh, but from an economic perspective, uh, the reality is that the, the economy is more and more driven by digital society and digital society is, is driven by connectivity and a significant portion of connectivity is provided by wireless systems. And so when you start thinking about it, you know, from a national imperative basis, it is important that both of those imperatives are cared for. And so that, I think, has opened up the dialogue that has allowed for how do we solve this problem that allows for both of those imperatives uh, to be successful. The fact is, is, is when you increase the connectivity, we've, we've just... Uh, just recently celebrated the 40-year anniversary of cellular, the first cellular call. And I had the opportunity to kind of reflect and talk about, well, what, what's changed, right? You went from, you know, a small number of people that were having phone calls in their car to pretty much everybody has a cell phone in their pocket and they're not just talking, they're not just texting, they're doing digital commerce mm -hmm. uh, on the little device uh, in, in, in their hand, right? And that that means a lot, but that also takes more and more spectrum. And so, you know, as that continues to grow with, with the introduction of 5G, uh, you have what's referred to as the industrial revolution, right? So we're changing processes. We're getting the efficiency of, of, of enterprise. And by the way, DOD themselves wants to take advantage of, of those capabilities. That drives the need for more spectrum, right? So, so at the end of the day, when you start taking all of those imperatives, what's happening from a digital society perspective, you look at the uh, industrial revolution changes that are happening, what are, we, what are we trying to do with these systems? And you bounce that together with uh, the needs that haven't changed of DOD. It does suggest that something has to change. We've got yeah. we, we, to go figure it out. 
Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting because decades ago, a lot of the advanced, the the innovation that you would see from a te- on technological front would come out of DOD. It would enter into the commercial sector and then produce economic growth accordingly. But now you're kind of seeing that re- process reversed where the, the commercial sector is coming out like, hey, this is a even a better way of doing it. This is a better way of connecting, of tr- sending information faster and, and more data. And DOD is like, hey, this is what we need. And so trying to pull those lessons in internally now is 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 uh, something that I think they've there's been a lot of progress in there and it's great to see, but there's they're still playing catch up, I think, in terms of understanding what it takes to engage commercial and likewise, it's the that same pressures on the commercials side. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology and for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com/fastlabs. Fast Labs.
Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. Um, so one of, one of the topics that has, you know, we continue to kind of monitor is what is going on with the 3.1, 3.45 bands. Uh, you know, CIO has gone to great lengths to be very inclusive with this in this effort. But it's an area where there's going to be more activity, more efficiencies to be found. More. So could you talk a little bit about that ban as a as a problem set, as well as what you see the solutions coming out of DOD and the commercial sector might be? Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, the, the CIO's office has is, is definitely driven a very inclusive process uh, in driven, you know, open dialogue between the DOD industrial base, the services, telecom, our equipment providers. Yeah, we're still waiting for the final report. So we'll, we'll have to see, you know, what the outcome of all of that work uh, truly entails. But look, at the end of the day, the work that did occur, you know, identified a few different paths, uh, not, to, not to play on words there, uh, because it was the paths work, but uh, uh, it, 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 it does give us a couple of different paths of potential sharing. You know, I think it'll be an evolution. I think my, my hope is that the outcome of the report uh, will drive action, not further studies, because candidly, I think the studies are done. We now need to actually go and take some of the nuggets out of the studies and start, you know, taking action to see how do we develop solutions. Look, the telecom community can't go in, in a vacuum and develop a solution by themselves. The DOD industrial base can't go and, and, and develop something uh, themselves. It's going to take a cooperative effort. I'm hopeful uh, that the outcome of this will, will set forward a path that allows us to go and do that. But again, until we see you know, what the recommendations that come out of the report are, it's just unknown of, of where we go next. But I, in my opinion, that's the work that needs to occur as the next step. So as, as we wait for the report, you know, once it comes out, a lot of that is, you know, how, what does the report tell Congress? And then how does that impact Congress's activity on this? As listeners know, you know, I used to work on Capitol Hill. So, you know, my boss used to be on both the, you know, the Armed Services Committee and the Energy and Commerce Committee. Very similar. They're, they're kind of like microcosms of the problem out there. You have different stakeholders, different jurisdictions. Could you talk a little bit about the role that Congress is going to play? Whatever comes out of a conversation between DOD and commerce, there can be some activity that they just go about. But a lot of this will go through Congress and they have to approve or they have a chance to influence. Could you talk a little bit about how that plays into it? Yeah. And good luck with that, because given Congress these days, you know, we don't know. So, <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. But um, look, the last thing we want is Congress to legislate the solution. What we hope out of that is, you know, Congress basically gives the direction to go do exactly what I just said. And that's, you know, hey, all right, studies have been done. This is an imperative necessary for national success, both economic and uh, national security, they basically give the direction that we do need to go work the issue. We do need to go run uh, some trials, collect some actual data, and, you know, have engineers collectively work together that, that says, okay, well, how do we go from where we are to the next step that starts to open some of this up 
to the final step that is truly what I would refer to as, as dynamic capabilities. And I stopped short of using the word dynamic spectrum sharing because to be uh, totally honest, that's a, an over, overused term that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so it's, it's dangerous for us just to say, hey, we want to go do dynamic spectrum sharing without a definition of what that means, right? Telecom community, we've got a definition that's been in use. There are certainly some people that may say CBRS is, is dynamic spectrum sharing. There are some people that may say, you know, other, other techniques that have been proposed is spectrum sharing. But at the end of the day, it comes back to that guiding principle. We have to find mutual interest that allows for both parties to have high power, predictable, and reliable access to the spectrum. And when we get there, that's what success will look like. And we've, we've got some work to do to get there. And, and, and that means engineers doing what they do best, uh, engineering solutions, not legislation, telling us the solution that, that may or may not work. So, so coming up in, in uh, a short time, in a few weeks, is the Association of Crows uh, 60th International Symposium Convention every, every year in D.C., and the theme this year is advancing EMS superiority through strategic alliances and partnerships, of course, looking globally. And so I wanted, I did want to talk about this in, in, in a global perspective as well. You know, there's been some activity through allocation, reallocation of some of this spectrum uh, in Europe and, and in Asia. In our conversations we have, we talk a lot about interoperability and, and, and compatibility could you talk about the challenge of sharing spectrum as well as how we manage it from an international perspective and what that means in terms of interoperability? Yeah, that's, um, that's a, again, another good question. I promise I didn't ask you to ask these questions, but these are all, uh, all, all, really, good, uh, all really good questions that I think are relevant. If you look on the international front and we look at the 3.1 to 3.4.5 spectrum, the reality is this spectrum is already being used uh, by telecom providers in just about every theater of interest we care about. Europe, Middle East, Asia. Warfighters are likely, especially when you look at the, the geopolitical stage and what's going on in the world today, uh, the theaters at which we have the most likely activity, the spectrum is already in use. And so when you think about how do we, from an interoperable perspective, well, from a D, it starts with the DOD systems. Well, those DOD systems have to operate in an environment where this spectrum is being used uh, by telecom today, and, and the U.S. has nothing to say about it, right? It's, it's the regulators in those countries that have already allocated uh, that spectrum in much larger blocks and much higher power in some cases. And so when you think about interoperability, we, from a telecom perspective, have to, in fact, interop uh, with those global systems, because as most people know, right, we, we do operate in a global society. People want to take their phone from here to wherever else uh, that it needs to work. So the phones, in fact, have those capabilities built into them to, to work on those networks today. The DOD systems, many of them, do in fact have capabilities to uh, coexist with those spectrums and those environments. As more and more spectrum gets used, it'll become more and more challenging for the DOD systems to work around it. In what better place than to come together with natural interest here in the U.S. to figure out how do we make sure that that is in fact possible? That is, you know, that that we don't lose 
anything in the electromagnetic space, right? Is is we we want to dominate and, and have superiority. Uh, let's let's go dominate, and have superiority in those capabilities in the U.S., and that'll take care of itself from an interoperable uh, perspective uh, internationally. Kind of building on that, you know, we talk a lot about training domestically as well as overseas. A lot of that has to do with operations on bases, trying to build out the 5G access on base. I know AT&T is involved in that. I was wondering if you could provide us some insight into how that's going and what are some of the opportunities you're seeing on that front? That's one of those things that are very interesting, right? We've got uh, R&E for the last uh, several years. Now the role has moved into the CIO's office to to basically drive forward 5G capabilities on on base, yet the ability for the carriers to go build out coverage aboard the base is quite candidly a big mess. It's you know every every installation you know has its own set of rules on how you get access to the base, et cetera, and and that's that's a problem. You know again, you know Congress in their funding bill this year actually has given direction uh, to DOD to figure out, you know, what is that process. Uh, the CLO's office has certainly taken that on, and uh, we're hopeful that we're going to get some uniformity on what is the approach that, that then gets applied across the services, across the different bases. In Canada, we stand ready that if that occurs, right, it's our capital dollars that will help go build that out uh, because it gives us coverage to serve the servicemen and women uh, but then that that builds the basis that DOD can take advantage of that uh, for some of the ideas and concepts that that they're working on as well. That's an interesting perspective I hadn't thought about. When you have access to the bases do oftentimes operate with their own procedures and, and trying to get that uniformity flowing down from DOD across each of the services. It creates, a, like you said, it, it, it creates a complexity to the problem that it's, you're still working through. What can DOD do to, I don't want to say enforce that uniformity, but really make enough progress in that so that, you know, there's going to be an element of bringing the bases together in, in processes before you're even able to tackle some stuff. So how, what needs to happen for that to kind of pick up its pace? Yeah, candidly, um, bases need to start thinking about wireless service as another utility, Right. They, they do care for making sure power is brought to the base. They do make sure water is brought to the base, right? They do make, you know, so, so when you think about the common purpose utility, the reality is, you know, mobile communication is, is, is yet another utility that's important for, you know, the morale and welfare of our men and women that serve, right? And, and you know, this is not just an AT&T problem. This is, this is an industry problem. Uh, that we collectively, if you look at the bases we have and you look at the coverage on those bases, the majority of the bases don't have a single service provider that that serves the entirety of the base. And so if we start to think of it in that purview to start, right? And by the way, you shouldn't prefer just one. At the end of the day, the bases should want all of the carriers to come and build coverage because that creates competition. It gives it it it, it gives the servicemen and women choice on, on who their provider is, but it also gives DOD choice on how they, you know, how they evolve their their mission, uh, whether it be 5G or future G. Uh, a lot of the capabilities they've been talking about, it allows them to expand that at a much rapid pace. And oh, by the way, the taxpayer doesn't have to pay for that coverage, you know, 
that the carriers are paying for that, right? We provide that coverage and then, and you know, we get reimbursed through cell service. So what, one of the things I keep hearing is, you know, DOD talking about open RAN uh, radio access network as, as a priority. How does that tie into this? What is that? It's not a term that I'm particularly familiar with. Yeah, so the way cellular system has traditionally worked is they are proprietary systems from an end-to-end perspective. So the radio that hangs on the tower up to kind of the processing function that backs, that's back in the core of the network that then transitions to what we refer to as the wired portion, right? So your, your radio access network uh, traditionally has been brought by a single supplier, a closed ecosystem, uh, and that, especially when you look at the global scale, there is no large U.S.-based supplier of that infrastructure today. And so what OPEN does is it starts to open the ecosystem. It does uh, start to allow a mixing and matching of those components, several of which there are U.S. manufacturers and in, in capability. You couple those together with some components that may come from other you know, companies based in other countries, uh, preferably uh, friendly countries. You start to foster that open ecosystem. It starts to enable capabilities. You know, it, 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 it enables competition at the start, but then it starts to enable capabilities to where you can maybe inject. If you use DOD, maybe DOD can write an application that manages the behavior of the radio signal in and around a military installation, as an example. Those, those, are, those are some tangible, when you think about from a DOD perspective, those are some tangible uh, aspects, right? DOD uh, could go have a hardened radio that they build into their warfighting capability that easily integrates into the commercial network. All right, DOD could go write applications, as I mentioned, that can modify the behavior of the radio in and around specific things uh, that, that they care about. Uh, so that's really when, when you think about DOD's uh, push for open, and candidly, it's not just DOD, it's, it's the, the government as a whole. They're caring for competition with uh, U.S.-based capabilities, enabling U.S.-based uh, providers to uh, be engaged in, in that ecosystem, but also for national security and other reasons, uh, there's other capabilities that, that are possible uh, with that configuration that are a little bit complicated uh, when it's a closed proprietary system. Okay, so, so I, I understand that uh, Open RAN does provide for greater innovation, greater um, participation by stakeholders. So, so what is the downside of this? I mean, it, it seems like, why can't we just go right ahead and, and, and go forward with this? Look, the, the reality is today, uh, the U.S. networks uh, across all the carriers are pretty much 100% proprietary networks. That means we have hundreds of billions of dollars across all of the carriers invested in our networks today. And so suddenly, you know, saying, hey, everything is, is, is going to be open from this point forward. It's not realistic. It's, it's, a, it's an evolution over time that will occur. The good news is, is I do think that transition is primed to get started. It'll take a few years uh, to transition to where the majority uh, is, in fact, uh, starting to go towards open. 
we got to get started. The maturity level of open is is almost there. It's 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 not quite there from a performance perspective yet. So we've got to get a little bit more maturity. If I had to 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 guess, I would say you know we're a year two years away from the maturity level being uh, such that we can you know really start moving that way. But but make no mistake, AT and T as well as some of the other competitors, we are making significant investment in that in, in that space. We are pre-deploying capabilities that are software upgradable to be open. Uh, and as soon as the maturity level is there, you know, we will start that transition to be fully open and we'll at that point start to migrate as much as we can as fast as we can. You know, so I think the landscape at the end of this decade uh, will be heavily open focused, very likely. But between now and then, right, what's the right timing will very much be dictated on getting to the maturity level that gives us the performance that our customers expect. Well, thank you. That that helps a great deal. In, in our remaining time, I mean, if it's not clear already, I mean, AT&T is obviously very closely uh, involved in DoD across, in, in a lot of different initiatives. I wanted to get your take on what are some of the specific things that either we you haven't mentioned or you do want to go into a little bit more in terms of how DOD or how AT&T is working with DOD? Because I think that a lot of what you're accomplishing is potentially game-changing. Yeah, look, we have a long history of serving the country, right? If you, you, you look back at our heritage, it's not a coincidence that the first name, you know, first letter and name stands for American. And so if you, if you look back in history, AT&T has been, you know, a, a, a vital part of the U.S. infrastructure in support of, of, of DOD and, and other government agencies in providing connectivity service. Uh, we continue to do that today uh, with that connectivity evolving more and more to wireless. Uh, it's important for us to, to work with our, our, our government partners to figure out how do we how do we evolve these systems in a mutually beneficial way that continues to serve, you know, not only all Americans, but our various interests in government as well. Well, thank you, Gordon, for uh, joining me. It was, it was a great conversation. You know, a lot of this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, this is going to be a topic that's going to continue to evolve. Hopefully, we'll be able to have you back and uh, work with you to make sure that we use this platform from the crow's nest to really kind of tackle this topic because there's so much to talk about, but I really do appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to join me here on the show. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank Gordon Mansfield with AT&T for joining me. I also want to remind you once again, the AOC 60th Annual International Symposium Convention is around the corner, December 11th to 13th. So go to crows.org or AOC 2023 for more information. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for the day. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTC and Host. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.